Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Joe Stoltz sits down with Dr. Cassandra Good, an assistant professor of history at Marymount University, to discuss her latest research regarding George Washington's step-grandchildren and their time growing up at Mount Vernon. As a friendly reminder, there's still time to register for the Ford Evening Book Talk with Patrick Sparrow, author of Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence in the American West, 1765 to 1776, on Wednesday, January 30th. More information about this event can be found on our website at mountvernon.org podcast. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And now, Dr. Stoltz's interview with Dr. Cassandra Good. Well, Cassie, thank you so much for, for coming on the show with us today. It's good to be here. Uh, you know, why don't we start off, uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about um, your background and your career and, and how you got to be where you are. I often date my career as a historian to a high school research project I did actually on a Quaker family in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I grew up. And I was getting my community service hours, and they asked me to transcribe this woman's diaries. And mm-hmm. I got completely fascinated. She had 12 volumes. Her husband also had 12 volumes of diaries. And I ended up doing an exhibit for them uh, on those diaries and got kind of hooked. So I actually majored in American studies Uh, in college and got a master's in that and then worked at the Smithsonian for a couple of years before going back for my PhD at University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I wrote a dissertation on friendships between men and women in the founding era, which became my first book, Founding Friendships. And in that project, I came across the Washington relatives, and Mm -hmm. that sort of has brought me to George Washington. Thanks. Well, let's let's start off with your first book because that's uh, that's I, I really enjoyed it, and so I'm going to make everyone else learn about it, and then hopefully go go purchase it. Um, what uh, you know? So, who who were some of the friendships that you you looked at? So, a lot of the friendships in that book would be people that a lot of readers are familiar with. So, on the cover is Thomas Jefferson and Abigail Adams, mm-hmm. and you know some people might have seen the portrayal of their friendship in the like Adams miniseries years ago, which I think tries to imply something was going on with them, which I don't think was the case. Although, in the way I define friendships, I do say just because there's either attraction or even some kind of physical intimacy between a man and woman doesn't mean that they're not friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't always know from the historic record. I don't think that's what's going on with Jefferson and Abigail Adams. But George Washington is also in there. Um, a couple of female friends, Elizabeth Powell in Philadelphia and Annis Boudinot Stockton in New Jersey. Um, and then there's sort of lesser known people. There's a pair I write about in the introduction. Uh, Charles Loring and his friend Mary Pierce, who you know was old enough to be his mother and was sort of a mother figure, and that's one of the few relationships where I actually had both sides of the correspondence for decades. Mm-hmm. So I was able to really get into the texture of their relationship. I had that too with Unitarian minister and transcendentalist William Ellery Channing and a woman named Eloise Payne who was a friend of his who would whip him into shape when she didn't think he was being nice and sort of try and teach him how to be a better friend. And he put up with that uh, and I think learned from that. So it's it's a pretty wide variety of people, pretty much elite people, though, because mm-hmm. those are the kind of people that left 
the kind of documents yeah. we need to get get at these friendships. Now, um, what is there anything that you found that was uh, unique to friendships in the 18th century as opposed to the way we might think about it in the 21st century? Well, a couple of things. I mean, some people have said, oh, you're talking about platonic friendships. And I said, well, the word platonic actually meant something different in the 18th and 19th centuries. It meant romantic but not consummated. So we can't even use the same terms. Mm -hmm. They didn't even have a word for this category of friendship, which is part of what made it tricky. And the stakes, I think, were a lot higher for women uh, in these friendships because if people thought that there was something sexual Mm -hmm. going on, that could damage their reputation so that they wouldn't be able to get married if they were still single, um, which could leave them destitute. So the stakes are a lot higher. On the other hand, the kind of challenges that they have of trying to make sure people realize that they're just friends and people misinterpreting the relationship or even the men and women in the relationship not being fully sure of their status, those are things that felt fairly familiar Mm -hmm. uh, to contemporary relationships. And it's, especially given the broader ways of talking about sexuality that we have now, it's kind of surprising that uh, it's still so difficult for men and women to be friends. Yeah. Um, Well, friends, uh, and and this is uh, a podcast by George Washington's Mount Vernon, who were some of George's friends? Because we, we, I think, hear a lot about people that were sort of in his orbit. Um, but who were people that he would have actually considered close enough to sort of call his friend? Yeah, and even the term friend is tricky because that could be used uh, just to mean, you know, a business partner mm-hmm. or a patron or could be used for family. In his case, in terms of close friends, Elizabeth Powell was one of his very closest friends. She was the wife of Samuel Powell of Philadelphia, and uh, she was sort of a force in her own right. Um, She's the one that there's this story, possibly apocryphal, about at the end of the Constitutional Convention um, when Franklin, she saw Franklin on the street and said, what kind of government have you given us? And he supposedly said, a democracy, if you can keep it. Um, but while the Constitutional Convention was going on, George Washington was hanging out at her house for tea almost every day. There's pretty good records from his diary of mm-hmm. how often he was there. And his wife, Martha, also became friends with Elizabeth Powell. And they stayed friends the rest of their lives, um, although... You know, this was towards the end of George's life that he mm-hmm. was getting to know Elizabeth Powell. But then she stayed friends with um, the Custis step-granddaughters, Martha's granddaughters. She stayed friends with them as well as with George's nephew, Bushrod. In fact, even gave him a loan, uh, helped him out financially when he was taking over Mount Vernon. Uh, so that would be probably the closest female friend mm-hmm. he had. Um, and then Anna Spudinow Stockton is another woman that occasionally you see a blog post where somebody has dug up letters between the two of them <laughs> mm-hmm. and said, like, ooh, are they flirting? Is something going on here? And he writes to her fairly playfully. She sent him poems praising him. Mm-hmm. He writes back and says, and she's like, I'm so sorry I keep sending you these poems about you. And he basically writes back and says, well, as punishment, um, I'm going to make you have dinner with me. Well, he's just writing playfully. That's Mm -hmm. maybe it's a little bit flirtatious, but there's nothing untoward in what he's doing. I mean, and you see correspondence between men in that period that can also be. um, So, I mean, that sort of brings up um, because I, I, the one you know, it's been on our mind here a lot 
the past few years is, is Washington's relationship with the Marquis de Chastelou, um, where you know Washington and him have. You know, Washington says that his soul clings to Chastelou like no other man, and uh, my my favorite, um, not that we've discovered, but my favorite sort of anecdote that I came across um, is when uh, they're on the way down to Yorktown and Chateau has just gotten some, he, he writes to Washington and he says that I've received six barrels of wine from Bordeaux. Uh, I'm sending one of them to you and I expect you to drink it. And if you don't, you're a Tory. And Washington writes back, well, if I you know, have to finish this entire barrel of wine for the honor of America, I will be <laughs> happy to do it. Um, but you know, those two also write sort of letters to each other that I think to 21st century minds seem especially flirtatious, and it just seems yeah. in the 18th century they were more comfortable expressing feelings. Would you? Yeah, well, so I think we have to understand that emotions are, we tend to think of the way we feel as something like biological and mm-hmm. psychological, and that's a human universal, and yet there's more and more research that shows us that actually feelings are conditioned by the place and time mm-hmm. and culture in which we live, and so we can't take that emotional language at face value, we have to sort of place it in the context of here's letters we know are between spouses that we know are love letters. What is their language like? Mm -hmm. And compare that to other language. And in fact, same-sex friends could write much more emotionally effusive letters to one another. That wasn't considered threatening. And Mm -hmm. I would say even um, physical intimacy between men, especially before they got married, um, Richard Godbeer's book, The Overflowing of Friendship, talks a lot about this, and he doesn't get into, you know, if we know exactly what happened mm-hmm. with them, but it was clearly okay with these families for men to be very, very close and possibly have physical intimacy as long as they went ahead and got married and followed their standard roles. Mm-hmm. And and I think the same is true for some younger women of this period, too. So, the language and the ideas about sexuality are so different. We yeah. have to sort of assume it's a foreign country and take away our preconceptions about it. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and that's, uh, I think, in some ways a good segue to, could it, see you when we're here, talking about parental expectations. Seems like a good time to shift to um, children. Uh, so one of the reasons we were especially excited to have you on the show, besides the fact that you're an amazing scholar, uh, is that uh we did a recent episode where we asked uh, listeners for ideas on new episodes. And one of the things they wanted to know more about was the Washington uh, family children. And we said, we know someone that does that. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, let's talk about, you know, the, the Washington family children, um, which I think interests a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Um, but we'll just let you sort of start. I mean, what, what got you interested in on that topic? Well, when I was looking at friendships between men and women, I came across Nellie Custis Lewis, whose letters have been published in a volume. Uh, It's a huge volume of letters between her and a female friend, um, but she's also talking about male friends in those letters. Mm -hmm. And then I found some letters between her and male friends, and then also her sister, Eliza Park Custis. Huge collection of letters between her and David Bailey Warden, who was a sometime diplomat and writer from Maryland. And um, then both of them also had correspondence with Lafayette. So I'd come across these women, and I was like, okay, who are they? I always, with these friendships, needed to know, who are these people? Mm -hmm. And I saw that these were Martha Washington's grandchildren. I thought, oh, I didn't know that there were grandchildren. Um, I probably had seen them at Mount Vernon when I visited as a kid. and But my line in my head was, George Washington didn't have children. Mm -hmm. And yet... 
he raised Nellie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was sort of de facto her father, um, even though, you know, he's not blood related to her. And so I thought, well, who are all these people? Who are the other children? What happened to them? And that made me really want to write a book, figuring out mm-hmm. what had happened to them, especially when I found I couldn't really find many books about them. There are some older you know, we're talking like 100 years ago, yeah. some of the books that actually talk about the Custis family and give you a family narrative. But there's not a ton of information out there about them. Well, and I guess let's, um, just for any of our listeners that might be um, confused, let's start from the beginning. Where do these children come from if George never had Right. So Martha was a widow when... George met and married her. And she had had four children with her first husband, Daniel Park Custis. Two of those children died and two lived, um, Jackie and Patsy, Jackie being Jack, uh, John, Mm -hmm. uh, a boy. And so she had two young children when she married George, and they sort of come into the family. He stays fairly hands-off with them. I mean, there are a lot of interesting letters when Jackie goes to college and um, and <laughs> yeah. Washington is trying to get him into shape, and then the whole thing plays out a second time with Jackie's son, George. Mm-hmm. It's the same dynamic of, you know, a well-to-do, somewhat pampered son who doesn't really want to apply himself and the stepfather coming in and being like, you know, we expect better things from you. Um, Lori Glover has written some great stuff about this in Founders as Fathers Mm -hmm. about this relationship. Uh, And then it is Jackie who, against the wishes of his mother and stepfather, gets married extremely young to Eleanor Calvert of the Calvert family in Maryland. And then they very quickly have four children. Uh, those are the four Custis grandchildren that we know about, uh, Eliza, Martha, Nellie, and George Washington Park Custis. They all are Park Custis in their yeah. name. Um, now, how old were, the, uh, were, were Martha's children when Washington, because uh, he, he officially adopts them, if I remember Right, which isn't required, or how does that work? So interestingly, there's not a way to officially adopt children in America until the mid-19th century. And even then, even when you officially adopt a child, they don't necessarily get your inheritance. There's this real unwillingness, and this goes back to English law of inheritance and a sort of obsession with having full-blood descendants. Uh, There's a... There's a real unwillingness to have the family wealth go to somebody who's not a blood mm-hmm. relation. And so I think that's part of part of this. There were ways that, like, through an act of the court, you could, you know, become the guardian of a mm-hmm. child. And so he is their guardian, and because he is the one who is managing Martha's money as a wife, she pretty much has to turn over a lot of her rights uh, to the husband. But I think he seems to have felt... Like, she was their mother. It was her estate. Like, Mm -hmm. to a certain degree, she was going to call the shots with the children. Um, So the kids, I'm just looking here. Um, I mean, Jackie was something like, uh, I guess, four or five uh, when Martha married George. So, you know, pretty young. Yeah. Um, And then he is... 
still extremely young when he gets married and has his first daughter in 1776, right at the beginning of the war, has the last son, George Washington Park Custis, um, towards the very end of the war, and he dies very soon after of Camp Fever, where he's, you know, gone off to try and fight. Yeah, isn't it on the Yorktown campaign? I believe believe it's at Yorktown that he he doesn't really see any fighting. I think he just shows up and gets Camp Fever and dies. Well, swamps of Southern Virginia. And, (laughs) yeah, and so... You know, and actually both the Custis and Washington lines, a lot of the men died fairly young. I mean, Washington, even though he wasn't that old when he died, outlived many of the male relatives. So Tallest building in Wichita. uh, So he's, you know, this is not a totally unusual situation, but basically Jackie's widow, Eleanor, is left with four extremely young children. and so the youngest two come to Mount Vernon, uh, Nellie and Wash, uh, George Washington Park Custis. I'll just call him Wash yeah. for simplicity's yeah, sake yeah. here. So Nellie and Wash come to Mount Vernon to be raised by George and Martha. Uh, the most official thing in terms of guardianship is that when Nellie is going to get married, George is the one who, as her guardian, is the one who gives permission. Mm-hmm. So to that extent, he is legally her father. Now, what was it like for these kids to grow up in Mount Vernon? Do we have a sense of that? I think a lot of the accounts are that they grew up very pampered. Uh, Obviously, this was a well-to-do family, and they had enslaved people serving their every need. Um, They also had a grandmother who doted on them. I mean, by all accounts, because—so we didn't mention that Jackie's sister, Patsy— uh, died of what we think is some kind of epileptic seizure when she was 17. And, you know, Jackie had died fairly young. Martha had lost her husband, mm-hmm. lost two other children. She's clearly pretty nervous about yeah. the health of these grandchildren and is doing everything possible to keep them alive and is very anxious about it. Uh, they had tutors coming in as they got older. Um, they had luxury clothes, goods, instruments to play. Uh, They're taken to shows, to plays. A brand new harpsichord, which has been just recently restored. Ah. You can come see that at the mansion. Right, and because George Washington kept such good records of his financial accounts, which are also online now, you know, we can see all the things he was buying yeah. for the kids and see in his diary, like, took them to a play. So they're out in Mount Vernon some of the time, but then they are in New York and Philadelphia yeah. uh, when he is serving in the government and serving as president. So they are the first first family uh, when he is president they are known as the, ch- the president's family. Mm-hmm. And there's that famous image, uh, this fam- the famous Savage painting, uh, the yeah. Washington family, that shows George and Martha and then the children. And that image was one of the most popular prints through at least the first half of the 19th century. So people had cemented in their heads, okay, these kids are his family. But everybody knew they were not yeah. his blood-related children. Well, in the 18th century. In the 19th century, the, yeah, well, yeah, people yeah. knew. Yeah. I mean, you can see for all of their obituaries, anytime they're sort of talked about in the news, especially with George Washington Park Custis when he dies because he had been sort of the keeper of the Washington flame and had a lot of the relics at his house. There is, you know, they make clear, there's one article that says something like, in some ways, you know, it's even better that 
he had George Washington's affection as a father when he wasn't his blood-related son. Like, that should tell us something good. There's also when there's discussions about enslaved people, and there's a lot of discussions in the mid-19th century about whether about African-Americans that people are saying Wash had fathered, and there are articles that say, well, at least it's not George Washington's blood going down that line yeah. because they know, like, people are extremely aware that it's the cuss's blood, yeah. That it is, that they are not blood related. Yeah, and if people haven't seen um, this painting before, just are, are, are kind of blanking on the one we're, we're talking about, we'll, we'll put a copy of it on uh, the episode page at slash podcast. Because um, it, it is, where's the original at? It's the National Gallery. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, has, and I think that there are other painted copies of it. Savage also produced it over a number of years, and he painted them at different times, so the ages are not exactly, like, George and Martha, I think, were painted later and look older. Like, they're, it's a kind of strange yeah. painting. And they're over a table with a map of Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the namesake there. And it's interesting to note, too, that George Washington Park Custis builds Arlington House, mm-hmm. top the hill where Arlington Cemetery is, overlooking yeah. The city, and in fact, at the point he bought that, that was part of Washington D.C. So, so he's he's both in the namesake city and overlooking. Yeah. So can we can we call then in some ways you know the Washingtons the first sort of Beltway family? Well, I mean, all of the Custis grandchildren did have houses within the Beltway. Yeah. Uh, Nellie's house was at Woodlawn, which was split off from the Mount Vernon estate, and that house is now run by the National Trust. It's a beautiful house. Um, Wash's house, Arlington House. Martha and her husband, Thomas Peter, built Tudor Place in part with money that they inherited Mm -hmm. from George Washington. And that's also a beautiful house open to the public. Uh, Eliza lived in a few different houses um, with her husband, Thomas Law. Uh, They had one house that recently sold and is going to be restored that's Mm -hmm. in D.C. And then... But they, they were not living there very long. And then after they got divorced, kind of big scandal in that time period, mm-hmm. she built a house that is now the main building of the Episcopal School campus in Alexandria mm-hmm. off of Quaker Lane. So I've been in that house. It only has – there's not much historical fabric left in it because it's been – they didn't even realize whose house it was <laughs> until like 20, 25 years ago because she didn't live there that long. Yeah. But there are ads in the paper for where she she got tired of it like five years later and decided to sell it. (laughs) As her stepsons said, like, we knew she would not like living out there in the middle of nowhere in the country. And then she just sort of floated around to different people's houses the rest of her life. Um, Yeah, just back to the painting, because I I knew it was somewhere downtown D.C. because I've I've had twice where I've been at the museum and, and had to help explain to people, like, no, those aren't. George Washington's kids, or they're confused, like, who are these children because George Washington didn't have kids? I'm like, you're right. Here's who they are. Just doing my, you know, I, I don't get paid for that. <laughs> Mount Vernon doesn't pay for off-site work. Um, well, what, uh, I mean, what, what, it, what has been sort of the most interesting um, discoveries you've made with your research so far as you've learned more and more about the family and, and their family life? Well, it is interesting, this degree to which they are his family, and yet everybody knows that they're not his blood-related family, and I've been surprised at the degree to which people understood that and the way in which the Custises had to sort of consciously shape their image as 
being Washington's heirs because there were surviving blood relations of George Washington. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bushrod Washington, his nephew, uh, inherits the Mount Vernon estate, uh, although it's pretty much an empty shell when he yeah. inherits it. The children, the Custis grandchildren actually end up, through various complicated means, getting most of the objects and furniture from the house. Um, and then, you know, the, the house goes down through then to Bushrod's nephew and then that nephew's son. So it is people with the last name Washington who are still around, but it is the Custises that you see other Americans talking about and that are out there actively being the keepers of the Washington flame. And there's even a point in the early 1830s um, where they're trying to decide Congress really would like to have George Washington buried in Mm -hmm. the Capitol. They're having this debate in Congress over whether they can move his grave from Mount Vernon. And there's a debate over, well, who do we ask for permission? Mm -hmm. Do we ask his nephew, who now owns Mount Vernon, or do we ask George Washington Park Custis? And they end up asking both of them, and they have two different answers, and, you know, it never happens. But, you know, there is this this sense that there are the two competing possibilities for who could be Washington's family, and the Custises put in the effort and win that mm-hmm. contest. Well, and I, I, sort of on that line, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Washington's most famous non-descendant, but sort of gets credit for being tangentially related, you know, is Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for our listeners, how, where does that connection come in? Yeah, people are, a lot of people are shocked when they realize this, but there, I mean, there was, there have been a couple of books to talk about this um, that are pretty interesting because the American public associated Lee as being part of, you know, a descendant, in quotes, they knew he wasn't mm-hmm. blood related, of George Washington. So George Washington Park Custis had one surviving white daughter. We, I, we say that now because it's sort of unclear at this point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we don't fully know. Arlington House, in their new interpretation, identifies one African-American woman as his child. Um, so his, his daughter, Mary Anna Randolph Custis, this is confusing because her mother is also Mary, yeah. Mary Lee Fitzhugh Custis, so Mary Anna Randolph Custis marries Robert E. Lee, who is, uh, you know, a cousin of some sort at that point. Mm -hmm. And the Lee family has known the Washingtons and Custises. These are all prominent Virginia families. They get married and they they live at Arlington House. Um, Lee is traveling a fair amount through his work um, at West Point as an engineer fighting in Mexican-American War, but their home base is Arlington House. Marianna Randolph Custis Lee is the one who actually inherits the house, not Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee does not own the Mm -hmm. house at any point, which becomes a big issue, in fact, because the United States government seizes the house and grounds during the Civil War, and the family later sues and says, look, the you know, you said you you took this because it's Robert E. Lee's and he was rebelling, but his wife wasn't rebelling and it was her house. Mm-hmm. And it takes decades, but they do end up getting paid back for the some value of the house and land. And that is where, as a sort of um, insult to Robert E. Lee, they start a cemetery for Union soldiers and they start putting in graves right up next mm-hmm. to the house to be as insulting as possible. And the families, it is actually kind of sad reading his wife and daughter's accounts of how their home has been 
destroyed. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, because I was just thinking of, uh, you know, sort of in the early years of the Civil War, the Confederate government's attempt to sort of actively sort of make that tie-in of Robert E. Lee to Washington and sort of promotion of their cause um, is interesting. Uh, well, what else? What other sort of uh, nuggets have you been turning up? Well, you know, Eliza Park Custis, and also Eliza Park Custis Law, she's very briefly married to this guy, Thomas Law, who Rosemary Zagari is working on a biography of. He's fascinating in his own right because this is a British guy who go, who's serving as an official in India, fathers three sons in India, brings a couple of them with him to the United States, meets and marries Eliza, who's much younger, um, they have one daughter. They get into a dispute and get divorced. And all of the letters sort of around that divorce and their ongoing sort of acrimonious relationship and then her relationship with the stepsons. Um, the library here at Mount Vernon has a lot of that correspondence mm-hmm. now, and it's pretty fascinating stuff. And Eliza is a fascinating and tragic figure because, I mean, this is a woman who she says – at one point that she would have been better off basically as a boy, that she's really smart, she's very forceful, um, and she's sort of constrained by being a woman in that time. If you see the portrait of her, maybe you can put an image of Mm -hmm. this up too, because it's actually, it's in a private collection, but this is a Gilbert Stewart portrait of her, and she's standing with her arms crossed, sort of looking defiantly. She's standing like this, and that is not a normal pose for a woman. Uh, in portraiture at this time. And I think it gives us a sense of what Eliza was like. She, there were people all the time that called her an Amazon. They <laughs> called her crazy. Um, she constantly was falling in love with visiting sometimes nefarious Frenchmen. She was engaged. Are there any other to, kind? <laughs> well, I mean, a, a couple of these guys were like actual phonies yeah. who were pretending to be <laughs> noblemen who actually weren't. Um, I mean, even Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, who had gotten married and divorced against her will f- from Napoleon's brother, warned her against a relationship with the French ambassador <laughs> at one point. Um, she really liked the French. She was the one Custis that was a Democratic Republican and not a Federalist. Mm. She's just this sort of force of nature that I think in another time and place would have had a much happier life. She ends up at the end of her life. um, Her daughter gets married and has three children who she's very close with. The daughter dies. She's helping raise the grandchildren. She gets in some kind of dispute with her son-in-law who gets remarried to James Monroe's granddaughter. Uh, And then she... Um, you know, dies sort of alone and sad and ill at a friend's house in Richmond in 1831. It's it's sort of a tragic, but also she's completely fascinating. It's a fascinating story. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think all of this has just been absolutely, as you put it, fascinating. Um, so I hope we've whetted the audience's appetite. Is there a, is there a timeline for, for when folks be able to Pre-order? Uh, uh, not not yet, because the writing of this book still needs to happen. Most of the research is done. It's a huge research task, though, because there's not one consolidated collection of the family's papers. Um, there's a ton of great stuff here at Mount Vernon, but it's also 
spread out at archives all over the place. So I've been doing research for years now on this, and it's a lot of people to track down. And so now I'm starting to write, but stay tuned. Nice. Um, do you do you do you? You don't have to get into specifics on this question, but do you, do you have a preferred publisher yet, or uh, or or should we be just br- sending this podcast episode straight to uh, <laughs> different acquisitions editors? Well, you know, my goal is to have this out with a popular press that's accessible to a wider public. This is, you know, I'm going to have some academic articles that have the more meaty, mm-hmm. intellectual, academic, you know, engaging the historiography type arguments, and then I want the book to be more readable. Yeah. Um, accessible narrative for people who maybe are not read up in the latest uh, yeah. academic debates. And because I do think this is sort of a saga. So it's going to go yeah. from the revolution to the Civil War. Um, and yeah, we'll have to, as I said, stay tuned. Yeah, well, be- best of luck. I mean, I, I can't wait to, to get a copy myself. Uh, and thank you just so much for, for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.